Good morning, everyone. For those I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. Um, this is a time when we go to God's word, and I'd love for us to just collect our hearts right now and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Let's do that right now. Dear Lord, you alone know what everyone here is carrying. You alone, Lord, know what we need today. So all of us together, collectively as a body, direct our eyes to you. Though we cannot see you, we hope in your character, your unfailing love and your compassion towards us, that you're a God who's alive, who speaks, who's here with us, we ask you now that you would speak to our hearts today. As always, would you make that prayer your own from your heart? Would you ask the Lord to speak to you? Amen. Several years ago, I heard the background story to one of the most powerful speeches in American history. It was the background story to Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. You could hear about this more on NPR's uh, podcast, Hidden Brain. The episode is entitled Embrace the Chaos. But basically, well, apparently, in the beginning of the speech, Dr. King read from a script. It was all scripted out. He read from the script, and he stayed up late the night before, meticulously planning every single word. And according to the podcast, the speech was well-crafted, but it was lifeless. And there, there, there's a point in the speech that he looks down and sees a line that's terrible. He hates it. <laughs> so terrible that he chose not to say it. Here's a line, okay? It's not in the speech, but this is a line. Now let us go back to our communities as members for the Society for Creative Dissatisfaction. That didn't make the cut. He never said it. In fact, he chose not to say it. And instead, he goes off script. And Mahalia Jackson, a gospel singer who was there at the time, heard him talk about the dream that he ended up talking about. He had, he had, she had heard him talk about the dream before, and she yells out, tell him about the dream, Martin. And the rest is history. We are moved by Dr. King's speech, not only for his rhetorical skills, but also for his passion. And his, his passion and the hope that he had, the audacity to believe that in a critical time in American history. When we see a person's passion, when we see someone who cares really deeply about something, and we happen to care about it too, it's compelling. It's moving. We respond to passion. But does God? How do you think God responds to passion? I personally, and I think there's biblical reasons for this too, I believe God responds to passion, and it's not just emotions. We serve a God who responds to prayers that are honest, that are desperate, that are wholehearted. To, he responds to people who are willing to struggle and labor in prayer, who wrestle with him. My prayer in this series that we're in right now called The Way That We Pray, The Ways That We Pray, my prayer is that God would make us a community that prays passionately, that cares deeply, that prays wholeheartedly. But what does this look like? What does it mean to pray with passion? We're going to see two things today. It means that we are a people who contend with God and we cling to his unfailing love. We contend with God and we cling to his unfailing love. Let's look at the first thing, that we contend with God. 
Passionate prayer implies this, that we are a people who contends with him. And what I mean is, we learn how to labor in prayer. We wrestle with God. Prayer feels like wrestling. It feels like a struggle, right? We are wrestling with the Lord for whatever it is that we, we desire. We express our doubts, our fears. We are just open with him about what's in our heart. We pray wholeheartedly. We pray with urgency, desperation. And what if we were a community that contended with God like that together? Not just individually, but collectively. We're a body who knows how to contend with God. Like imagine if you walked into the service this morning and you heard us sing these words. Like I love the things that we sing. I love the songs we sing every Sunday. But imagine if you walked in here and you, this, these are the lyrics of the songs that we sang today. Let's read verses one through four. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. How would you react if that's what we sang today? Song number one. Welcome, everybody. We're here to worship the Lord. How long will you forget me, God? David wrote this psalm, perhaps while king, while he was experiencing familial division in his life, like family division. And what does he say? This man after God's own heart, this man who experiences friendship with God, tells God that he feels abandoned by him, that he feels forgotten. And he wants to know how long this is going to continue, the state that he's in. His thoughts consume him, or he feels at least that he's left to his own counsel, that there's no one there to guide him but his own thoughts. And it's not just a day. It's not just a moment. It's a season of his life. Day after day, night after night, how long will I have to carry the sorrow in my heart? Unless we think it's just emotional and psychological or mental. He says, my enemies. He's got real enemies. There's real danger that lurks. But again, I want you to remember that this isn't David just writing, dear diary, right? It's not just for his, his, his own individual experience, I feel forsaken. No, these are community laments. They're community tears. They sang this together as a people. That's why when it comes to the way that we pray, we need to be a people that can contend with God together. When faced with crisis, if there's a prayer request in our community that we can sing, how long, Lord? Like, where are you right now, God? I can't find you anywhere. There's crisis and danger that abounds in our community. It lurks. Our thoughts consume us. We want direction, and we're, we, feel, we feel that we're left to our own counsel. Day after day, night after night, sorrows overwhelm us, God. The enemy taunts us. We learn to pray honestly, wholeheartedly, desperately. We pray with passion. We contend with God. Sometimes I think we're more spiritual than the Bible. Like we're conceding too much if we pray that way. You've all heard of ugly crying, I'm sure, right? Ugly crying. Like people who are so overcome with emotion and tears that they contort their face and it's not very pleasant to look at, like, you know. Well, as a community, I want us to learn how to ugly pray. You know? We're just so overcome with whatever it is that burdens us that we go and we are, we are willing to pray like that, like ugly pray before God. We pray with abandon. With our whole heart, with desperation, we labor, we wrestle with him, we struggle with him. Prayer feels like wrestling. 
And not just God bless this, bless that, bless that person, bless our church. And no, like we are wrestling with God together. Some examples of what that looked like in my life. I remember when, uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm an Indian. And so for uh, Indians, maybe it's a little different now, but at least back then it was like there are really two paths you could go. Like the model minority myth, you're either an engineer or a doctor. And I decided to be a pastor. <laughs> so like I became in some ways the, the poster child for what happens when someone foregoes one of those career paths and decides to go and study something like theology, which is like, unless you're a professor, like, like there's not really much you could do with that, right? And so I remember after my undergrad, I'm sorry, no, this was after Jyoti and I had gotten engaged to be married. I was a chaplain of a college in India, and I just got back from India and trying to figure out what was next. At that point, I had never even thought about pastoring. Like, it was kind of a bait and switch for her. It's like, I never, we never talked about that. We were engaged to be married. She didn't know that I was going to be a pastor. I didn't know that either. Like, it wasn't even on my radar. And I remember before that, though, there was a period of time where it was like, every day, it's like, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no idea how I was going to help provide for my family, how we were going to live together. I didn't know what to say to her, her parents. If they were asking me what's next, Jason, I had no idea. And I remember every day, like, there were days where I would put my face to the wall and I would say, Lord, this is the rest of my life. Unless you open a door, unless you speak, I've got nothing. And in some ways, and I told him this, I feel like my face is covered with shame in a community that's wondering, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I made a mistake. I should have listened to the advice and done what everyone else had said. I felt that God, in some ways, had left me to be ashamed. I remember when, uh, a couple years ago, we had, this is the time when we had closed the former church that I was pastoring, and we wanted to, to plant this church. We were, 14 of us went from there to come and plant this church, and there was a lot of financial questions and instability at the time, and the Lord, in a miracle, opened up a door for us to get into an apartment that could be ours, that, uh, that we could own, and it was just a miracle. We were praying for it. We were trying to get everything ready uh, and in place, and the day before we closed, we get a call from our lawyer that said, um, you could go forward with this, but we're not sure who owns it. So 10 years from now, if somebody comes up and says, I own the apartment, they're gonna have to, you're going to have to leave the apartment. And mind you, we did not renew our lease, right, because we told everyone we're going to move out. And we were going to go live with Jyoti's family in Queens for some time. All of our stuff is packed. This is the day before we close. And I got off the call. I went into our daughter's room, and I, I laid down with my face to the ground, and I started to ugly pray. I just started to convulse in prayer. And I said, God, what have you done? Why have you drawn us out? Why have you given this into our hands just to rip it away? Like, you know, if, if just the thought of, of leaving my apartment with my kids and my family, not knowing what's next. Like, to, to wrestle with it. By the way, we're, we're in the apartment, and we have been for about four years now, right? But to, to get to that point where I could be honest with God, Ugly pray, convulse, wrestle, struggle, toil with him, and contend with him. Why is this important? Why do we want to do this? It's not because we put our faith in our passion. Our faith is in God, in a God who responds to people when they bring their whole selves to him, when they pray passionately, with desperation, honestly. And I want you to ask yourself why you don't pray with passion. Are you asking God to respond to a desire that's still too weak? Is it a desire that, are you half-hearted when you pray? 
Are you praying with a false version of yourself because you refuse to bring your true self to him? Let me explain what I mean. We have false versions of ourselves when we approach God. And all of them stop us from really contending with him and wrestling with him. Here are a few, okay? For example, there's the theologian. That's a false self. The person who never contends with God, never unravels because the desire is for precision. The point of prayer is precision, and it crushes passion. So, of course, we need to be theologically accurate in what we think about God and say about God. But God is not a professor who is grading our prayers. He's not, like, looking at everything that we say and making sure that it's right, right? Like, he's a father who loves us and wants us to express our hurts, our wounds, our desires, and our doubts before him. But sometimes we pray as if the priority is precision, not just you bringing your true self and your true heart to God. <laughs> I'll give you an example of someone that I know. Like uh, I was ministering with someone who kept referring to Jesus as dad. I'm like, no, bro, Jesus is not the father. And like the theologian in me like wanted to correct him, but God was responding to his prayers. And like there were, there were certain things that he was praying for that particular weekend that we saw God answer again and again and again. It's, again, my point is not to say that theology is not important. It is. But sometimes there's a tendency to prioritize precision over passion. Then there's the cynic. This person never contends with God because of her fear of disappointment. She's guarded. She doesn't pray passionately because she must protect herself from caring too much. To be passionate, to really feel your desire to the point where you're going to ugly pray, that's, that's making yourself vulnerable. To be passionate, to care deeply, makes you vulnerable to disappointment. But imagine feeling deserted by God, overwhelmed by your thoughts, having sorrow day after day and night after night, and yet none of that stops you from contending. It's a season of your life, and there's sorrow upon sorrow, and yet you still contend with him. If the theologian prioritizes precision, the cynic prioritizes protection, self-preservation, right, instead of passion. Then there's the religious. This person doesn't contend with God because prayer is not even about that. Prayer is about a ritual, right? It's a spiritual exercise. It's relegated to, it's, a, it's in the realm of spiritual life, but it never permeates the real world or real life. Therefore, the person reads the Bible, has a great devotional life, has great quiet time, but it, the things that she or he reads in the Bible never informs the prayers that, that this person prays. Right? Never leads them to unravel before God. Never leads them to be more desperate and ugly pray, to pray passionately because they don't know how to bring the Lord into their cares, their real world anxieties and burdens because it's just a religious activity. The priority here is piety. So again, the theologian prioritizes precision. The cynic prioritizes protection. The religious prioritizes piety. None of them can contend with God because none of them bring their true selves. None of them pray with abandon. But we have real need and real desire, real questions, real doubts, real burdens. And the priority should be to engage God with those true things, those things that are true about us and not our false selves. Some time ago, I was with a group of pastors, and we all took turns, turns sharing our stories. And then there were, after we shared our stories, there was an opportunity for everyone to ask questions. And I was trying to lead them through this process. And one of them, if he had a false self, it was the theologian. And it was clear from the way that he responded throughout that weekend and our interactions that weekend. And after he shared his story, I asked him a question. I said, hey, man, 
we were going to pray for him. And, uh, and so before we prayed, I wanted to know, hey, what do you wish Jesus would say to you right now? And he said, that I'm good. I wish Jesus would say I'm good. And then immediately, like without hesitation, he started to correct himself. Like he started to say, well, you know what I mean. I mean, not that I'm good. We know that. And I, and I said, stop. Stop it, man. You don't have to do that. Nobody here is questioning your theology. We know your theology is good. Just say it. What do you wish he would say to you? Then he paused. And tears welled up in his eyes and he said, I, I, that I'm worthy. I wish he would say I'm worthy, that I'm good. And then we knew how to pray for him. You know what that's like? Like you can't, here's the thing about the theologian. The theologian will, will death, their, their prayers will die the death of a thousand clarifications. This is the way the theologian would pray Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Oh, well, te technically the days and seasons are in the Lord's hand. Will you forsake me, forsake me forever? Well, no, you tell me you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Day after day, I carry sorrow in my heart, but I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, you don't give yourself permission to feel. Feel anything. And here, I want to be very careful here because those things are true. And it might sound like, oh, but shouldn't we say those things? Yeah, we should. Like, there's some people who are so into their feelings and they're consumed with their thoughts, they probably should listen to themselves less and talk to themselves more. They probably should give themselves encouragement from God's word and not just be ruled by whatever they feel. But I know a lot of people who just don't do that. They don't give themselves that kind of permission. Here's an example of someone who was wrestling with God. Right here in the Bible, there's a man named Job who experienced tremendous suffering. And he, he tore his clothes and he sat in ashes and he was grieving and he mourned with his friends. And he, uh, he, he was asking God, for, uh, why have you done this, Lord? Like basically, why have you allowed this in my life? And he even cursed the day that he died. He basically said, it would be better if I had not been born. And his friends, with all the great intentions in the world, started to correct him. And started to say things that were true about God. In fact, if you were to open the Bible, the book of Job, and didn't know who was speaking, you would read some really powerful and beautiful and compelling things that his friends had to say, true things about God to Job. But at the end of the book, God doesn't rebuke Job, but rebukes his friends. Because there's a way to say true things that stops conversation. There's a way to say things that are true about God that stifles prayer and communication and does not allow a person to be honest about what they feel, that prevents them from really engaging God. In the end, God rebuked not Job, but his friends because of the way they use truth. So, depending on what your false self is, how are you using the truth? Now, does this mean that we can say anything we want about God? No, that's, that's, not, that's not true. I love what a, a pastor said, uh, Doug Logan, he actually preached at our church. He said this to our community in 2020 during the pandemic. He said, complaining about God is a sin, but complaining to God is a song. Like you've got a great cloud of witnesses who've done that before. We don't want to grumble about God. That's a sin. That's coming against his character. But saying, why God? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Are you going to allow the enemy to taunt me? Have you covered my face with shame? That's being real. That's being honest. That's taking him at his invitation to make your complaint known to him, to pray with desperation, honesty. That's contending with him. So here are some questions for you. 
What do you care about enough today to contend with them? What matters enough for you to wrestle in prayer, to ugly cry? And it could be that your desire is not strong enough and you're not sure what it is. Or maybe there's something that you really want, but either the, the theologian, the cynic, or the religious one is preventing you from actually praying in that way. The second thing. So not only do we contend with God, we cling to his unfailing love. So notice how David ends his prayer. Verse three. Look on me and answer, oh Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, this seems like a sudden shift. Like, what? Like, where did that come from? Like, is this David's theologian that's coming in, right, and trying to, like, self-correct him? No, I don't think so. I believe that the unfailing love of God is actually the foundation for his complaint. So imagine two things, okay? Imagine you can, you can hold two things in your hand. One you hold with an open hand, and the other you hold with a clenched fist, okay, a closed hand. The open hand holds desires that are honest, doubts that are honest, desperate, wholehearted. That's the open hand, right? But the closed hand holds convictions about God's unfailing love that you refuse to let go of. So the open hand is, I don't get it, God. Like, this makes no sense to me. I can't find you anywhere in this, God. My thoughts consume me. My sorrows consume me, overwhelm me day after day, night after night. My enemy taunts me. Closed hand. But you love me. And I will trust in that unfailing love. You are good and I will see your salvation somehow, some way in this life or the next. I will look back and see that you have vindicated me. You see... Clinging to his unfailing love is what frees him to contend. It's the foundation for making our complaint to him. It's the foundation for passionate prayer. Like you probably have some friends or a roommate or certain family members that you could be honest with. And there are some others who maybe you're not as honest with them. And if you're not, if, maybe one of the reasons that you can't be as upfront and honest or vulnerable with them is because you don't think they're safe. Like the people that you really feel secure with are the people that you could share your heart. And so you see this even in children. Like our kids don't have a filter. Sometimes I wish they did. Like I wish they had a filter before what they said. And when they freely express their desires and their complaints and their fears, as frustrating as it can be, here's the positive thing that it tells me as a parent is that they feel safe. There's security. You're not trying to filter yourself. The security of our relationship is the foundation. In the same way, I don't think David is correcting himself or contradicting himself or putting forth a false self. I believe both of those things are true, that he genuinely contends with God because of a conviction in his unfailing love. He's safe with God. That's why he can contend with him. Around 15 years ago, I received a call from a friend who was desperate for prayer. I was studying theology at the time. I was just entering into ministry. And his daughter was not feeling well, and he had to be rushed to the hospital. And he called me. He was frantic, and he said, Jason, can you, just, can you please pray for her? 
And I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> it could be that, again, I was immersed in, like, the work of theologians. It could be that I was inexperienced in handling these situations, or maybe because of my own cynicism. <laughs> but I said, yeah, of course, man, yeah, of course I'll pray. Pray that God heals her. And then I kind of slipped this in. I said, pray that God's will be done. <laughs> and he said, no, man, don't do that. <laughs> I said, don't pray for God's will. That's not why I'm calling you. Pray that God heals her. Now, we should desire God's will. Of course we should. We, do, do we want that? Yes. Is God's will what's best for us? Absolutely. God's will is what's best for us. He knows what's best. It's all true. But I don't know if I wanted to temper his expectations, pr protect him from disappointment, <laughs> Or temper my own expectations. I don't know if it was precision because I know it's like, uh, theologically correct to pray this anyway. Whatever it was, it's not what he needed. Like, that's not good pastoral sensibilities there. What he needed in that, in that moment is for me to just go in with him and pray. Contend with God. Labor in prayer. Wrestle with God and say, Lord, do this. Please do this. To pray as if it was happening to me. And say, God, heal me. Heal his daughter. He wanted me to pray passionately, to contend with God. And at that time, I thought the more I was going to do that, the less I would be convinced of his unfailing love. For some reason, I thought those two things were in opposition to each other. So I thought the more I contended with God, the less I must believe in his unfailing love. And that's not true at all. The truth is, we can wrestle with God. We can pray desperately, honestly, wholeheartedly, not self-correcting, not self out of self-preservation, not in order to be pious, but because of his unfailing love towards us, because we're safe with him. We could be honest. You see, this happened in the moment of Jesus' life as well. In a moment of anguish for our Lord, he was on the cross. I don't think he, know, he knew the scriptures, but I don't think he was just quoting the scriptures for our benefit. But he prayed out of the seven things that he said that we know on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow that, as mysterious as that is, I believe that was a genuine experience of the Lord. It was a genuine prayer. And yet one of the seven things that he also said before he breathed his last was, into your hands I commit my spirit. Both of those things can be true. Expressing a real wrestling in your soul and entrust yourself to the faithfulness and unfailing love of the Father. He was open, honest, and desperate and wholehearted in prayer, but he held on to a conviction that the Father will vindicate him. He will see his salvation. What's it like for us to do that? To know that he will vindicate us too. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. I don't know if that means that you're going to get exactly what you're going to pray for, but I know that somehow, if you're honest with him, he will not turn you away. A, a dwindling flame he will not extinguish. A bruised reed he will not break. He will, he will protect that little flame of faith that you have in your fire. He will protect it from all the winds of this life. If you would just come to him with the frailty of your faith, you will see that he welcomes you, and one day he will vindicate you too. Because of Jesus, we know he won't abandon us because our emotions are too raw or our feelings are too raw. He won't turn us away. He won't desert us. We can bring a whole heart, our desperation, our doubts, and our burdens. We can contend because of his unfailing love.
One of the things that made me think about this and wanting to preach this, it was that several weeks ago, I felt like one thing after another, people were getting sick in our church, right? And we had this 24 hours of fasting and prayer. And then I realized, wow, I don't know if as a community we've ever talked about what it means to just go in and wrestle with God in prayer, to ugly pray, right? And not feel like we have to filter ourselves, but to go and contend with God. And that's when I realized, like, We've got to be a community that knows how to contend and pray passionately together as a community. Where we go away from the scripts of false selves in prayer and we tell them about the dreams, the doubts, the hopes, and the longings. And we contend with God while clinging to his unfailing love.